Don't just ride the index. Seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Tonight on 360, sparks fly in the courtroom between the judge and the former president on the day Eugene Carroll, the woman he's already been found liable for sexually abusing, took the stand. Also tonight, Trump ally Roger Stone on tape allegedly talking about assassinating two Democratic congressmen. We'll speak to one of them tonight. And later, my conversation with a former Gaza hostage who reveals that much of her captivity was spent locked with her husband and children and others in an exam room at a major hospital in Gaza. We begin with these words. I would love that. That's what the former president told Judge Lewis Kaplan today after the judge in his second defamation trial threatened to remove him from the courtroom, to which the judge replied, I know you would. At issue, his comments during plaintiff E. Jean Carroll's testimony. She took the stand today telling jurors what it was like to endure the most powerful man in the free world at the time, calling her a liar and denying what's now a matter of legal fact that he sexually abused her in a New York department store in the 1990s. The denial he repeated it after court today. This is a person I have no idea until this happened, obviously. I have no idea who she was, and nor could I care less. It's a rigged deal. It's a made-up, fabricated story. Well, from there, he went to New Hampshire for a campaign event in Portsmouth. Joining us now, CNN legal analyst Joey Jackson, also with us, Caitlin Collins, anchor of The Source, and CNN's Kara Scannell, who was in the court today as this all played out. So, Kara, take us inside... What was that like? Yeah, so Eugene Carroll's on the stand, you know, facing Donald Trump. He is just two tables away from her as she's beginning to tell this story. And she says, almost off the bat, Donald Trump assaulted me, he lied about it, and shattered my reputation. And at that moment, Trump physically reacted, shaking his head side to side as if to say no. And from there, that just kind of began his reaction to her testimony. A lot of it involved him leaning over to his lead attorney, Alina Haba, whispering to her and making these statements. And that was not audible to us, the reporters in the courtroom that were sitting behind him. Mm -hmm. But at one of the breaks, this is when Carol's attorney brought it up, saying that they could hear sitting in front of Trump. And they were concerned the jury could also hear some of the comments that he was saying, you know, including that this was fake, she's a con job, and it's a witch hunt. Um, So that was something that was raised to the judge once the jury was out of the courtroom. So it was outside their ears. So how much of her testimony had taken place at that point? Well, at that point, she'd been on the stand for about two hours when their judge finally had that exchange with him saying, you know, I'll kick you out of the courtroom if you're going to continue with this. And she was talking about her experience. You know, this case is about damages. It's um, it's not about the assault. So she was talking about what happened to her 
after he made these statements from the White House in June of 2019. She's talking about the kind of threat she received, how she was changing her life. She got a pit bull. She bought bullets for a gun she inherited and keeps it beside her bed. Just talking about how much this impacted her, people wishing that she would die, saying that they hoped she would be raped. So just explaining to the jury what she went through after these statements were made. There were requests by the former president's attorneys for the judge to recuse himself, uh, declare mistrial. How did that go? Yeah, well, this again, Judge Lewis Kaplan, he does not really mince words. This, the Trump's attorneys asked for the judge to recuse himself, saying, after this whole exchange, you took the word of your former law clerk. You didn't even give us a chance to explain. The judge just looked at them and said, deny. They also had asked for a mistrial because they, one of the attorneys was questioning Carol about emails. And, and Carol acknowledged she probably deleted some of these threatening emails. They're saying, well, she deleted emails. We want a mistrial. This was in front of the jury. And the judge said, denied, and told the jury, disregard everything the lawyer said. Joey, so between the, the former president's statements in court and and uh, and also afterward, I mean, is he giving new fodder for even more defamation claims? Look, I really think he is. Uh, if it's not defamation claims, certainly it's to the issue of punitive damages. And we've seen that. And first of all, what are punitive damages? That's what this case is largely about. It's about punishing and deterring someone from engaging in misconduct like this, defaming and what is it worth, right? And so the reality is if you're continuing to say things, continuing to make statements, and I'll say this, right? I know it's a civil case. Anything you say can and will be used against you in the court of law applies civilly too. And so I think the attorneys will say, look, judge, this is ripe for the consideration of this jury, goes to the state of mind, goes to his inability to accept any responsibility here. And it goes exactly to what my client is talking about, about how she's demeaned, doesn't feel safe, and is being threatened. And as a result of that, let it in. And so it's up to a judge's determination. But certainly, I think if he's going to say something, accept the consequences of those statements and that's what we saw. Caitlin, I mean, this is just such a prime example of how the foreign president views this as part of the campaign trail. I mean, saying, you know, throw me out and the judge saying, yeah, I, I know you would like that. Because it is something that he would be able to use and to say, look at this judge. And he came out, you know, immediately after attacking the judge at length because the judge was pretty no nonsense, which is this judge's reputation with Trump's attorney and the way that she was questioning E. Jean Carroll throughout this, repeatedly denying her, her efforts because she wasn't properly marking exhibits or didn't have them in the transcript, you know, just following basic court procedures as a part of this. But I think the fact that Trump was in the room today also speaks to how he's viewing this, which is that it's important for him to be there because he did not attend the first trial. And after that multi-million dollar verdict was awarded, we had the town hall with him the next day, and I asked him if he regretted not testifying. And he said, no, because my attorneys told me that I shouldn't be there. Today, he made clear that he does feel that he needs to be there and that his presence is warranted. I think there's a real question of, of course, you know, that behavior and the fact that the judge was threatening to evict him from the room because he was speaking so loudly of how that's going to help him here and if it is. But it is very clearly something he's using as part of the campaign trail. Tomorrow says he can't go. And they asked for a delay in the trial because of Melania Trump's wife's or Melania Trump's mom's funeral is tomorrow. I was kind of arguing that he couldn't go. But his presence, I should note, is not required. He does not have to be there. He didn't go to the first one. Um, Carol, the you talked about these deleted emails, text messages. Did Why did E. Jean Carroll say she deleted them? And, and are there any messages she has to show this? 
So they showed some of the tweets she got, some of the Facebook messages. So we saw some of the, you know, vitriolic language that was thrown her way. But she said her physical reaction was to, like, recoil when she saw them. So her only way to deal with it, she felt, was to delete it immediately and put it out of her mind. Mm -hmm. You know, she did say that she did keep some of them. We did see some of them. Um, but, you know, it was more of her trying to tell this story of just how she felt when she saw some of them, including, you know, ones that were, you know, you're, stick a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger. That's one of the ones we saw today. It, it, Joey, could the deletion of these messages, I mean, is that a big deal? So <clears throat> here's how it plays into account, right? Now you have these deleted messages, but what do people generally do, right? Let's look at habit and custom. When you put something that's vitriolic on many people's, you know, threads, they're going to get rid of it. So you can't make the argument that as a result of deleting it, for example, it didn't happen or it's fabricated or you're telling the jury something that just isn't so. Normal human behavior is if you see something that is so denigrating to you, you'll let, you know, you want to remove it. And so I think it is a matter of credibility. It doesn't hurt her at all. But just to the general notion of how she felt as a result of this, how it impaired her, how it impacted her safety, how she talked about needing security. I mean, I think it, it's huge to the issue I addressed before. Four, which is punitive damages. How much will the jury award is yeah. the question. Joe Jackson, Karis Gunnell. Thanks. Caitlin Collins is back at the top of the hour when her guest is going to be House Speaker Mike Johnson. Again, from court, the former president continued his campaign in New Hampshire. Rivals Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley have been campaigning there as well. Seeing as Jeff Zeleny is in Rochester, Governor Haley just had some especially sharp words for the front runner. So, Jeff, what happened at the Haley event tonight? Well, in respect, Anderson, Nikki Haley was uh, responding to uh, the comments that Donald Trump has been making, both in person here in New Hampshire, but also in his television ads. He's been really focusing his attention and his attacks on her, setting his sights on her because, of course, she potentially stands in between his rise and his rush to the nomination. But she was talking about specifically immigration, some ads he's running, and Social Security. She said he's been lying about uh, her record. Take a listen to what she said just a few moments ago. I know Trump threw a, a temper tantrum about me last night. One of those things that my friend Trump said was that I didn't want to close the border. You saw what I said about the border. He said I didn't want a wall. What I said is I don't want just a wall. And, and how, how would they respond? So those words. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, Anderson, those words temper tantrum or something that we've really not heard uh, Nikki Haley uh, use before. Uh, clearly, uh, time is running short here for her to make her case to uh, New Hampshire voters. But uh, certainly that, you know, some giggles in the crowd when she said that. But the reality is some voters here are still trying to decide between uh, him, her or even Ron DeSantis. Uh, what else did she have to say? Anderson, she's been continuing to make her argument about electability. It was really one of the hallmarks of her argument she made in Iowa. She, um, she asked Republicans and even independents in the audience to think about the general election and how Republicans have lost uh, uh, so many uh, elections in recent years in the Trump era. She had this message for them as they think to the future. But the only way we're going to win is if we elect a new conservative generational leader and put the negativity and the baggage behind and focus on the solutions of the future. Don't complain about what happens in a general election if you don't play in this primary on Tuesday. 
So clearly expressing the importance of that primary on, on Tuesday. And Anderson, you can see she's uh, shaking hands with literally every last person in the room here, as she normally does. She didn't take questions, which is the, uh, the uh, tradition of uh, New Hampshire town halls, but she will be doing so tomorrow night here on CNN. But uh, one thing that's key, Anderson, as we talk to many voters here, she has uh, a welcome audience among those undeclared voters, which is uh, more than a third of the electorate here, uh, essentially independent-minded voters who can vote in the primary next week. Donald Trump accused her of trying to infiltrate the Republican primary. But in New Hampshire, those independent voters are so key. So certainly her message is resonating with at least some of them and several Republicans here we talked to tonight as well. It's interesting she doesn't take questions at these town halls, which is such a tradition. DeSantis was also in New Hampshire today. How is he, uh, what is he saying? And so there are serious questions hanging over his campaign tonight. He's actually flying back to Florida tomorrow, we are told. Initially, it was unclear if he was returning to New Hampshire this week. He, of course, wanted to debate Nikki Haley. She said she wouldn't debate him. She wanted to debate Donald Trump. But he was talking about, uh, you know, needing a true conservative. So he's been attacking her as well. But there is no doubt, in New Hampshire at least, this is a, um, a two-person race, at least at the top of the ticket. So he is going to refocus some of his efforts on South Carolina. Of course, that is the, the first a southern primary, her home state. But some deep concerns here about uh, the future of his candidacy. Again, he'll be in Florida tomorrow, but his aides insist he will come back here before the primary. Right. Jeff Selene, thanks very much. Next, more on how the former president is going after Nikki Haley, his own former U.N. ambassador, and how it fits his pattern of using racist dog whistles. Later, an Israeli mother held hostage by Hamas in a Gaza hospital with her children and others. What she went through, what life is like for them now after nearly two months in captivity. This show is supported by BetterHelp Online Therapy. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Maybe you'd go hiking or take a much-needed nap. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? BetterHelp wants you to know that now's the time to choose happiness. And working with a therapist can help you get closer to a more blissful you. Therapists are trained to help you figure out challenging emotions. And they teach productive coping skills, giving you a greater sense of confidence to face your stress and anxiety. With BetterHelp, you get the benefits of in-person therapy. Plus, it's more convenient, more accessible, and more affordable. BetterHelp is connected over 3 million people in counting with licensed therapists, all 100% online. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com AC360 today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash A-C-360. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now. Now that Nikki Haley has gained ground in New Hampshire, the former president has started doing what he has done so many times before to opponents and adversaries and perceived enemies alike. He is painting her falsely as less than American, referring to her on his social network as Nikki Nimrata Haley, with uh, Nimrata in scare quotes, misspelling what is in fact Governor Haley's first name, which is Nimurata. 
He also posted a claim by the Outfit Gateway Pundit, again false, that Governor Haley might not be a U.S. citizen. It reads, quote, this disqualifies Haley from presidential or vice presidential candidacy under the 12th Amendment. Now, keeping them honest, Nikki Haley is the child of immigrants from India's Punjab province and was born in the small uh, South Carolina town of Bamberg. That's in the United States. Nikki is her middle name, just as Mitt is Willard Mitt Romney's middle name, or Robert was Julius Robert Oppenheimer's middle name. The difference, of course, is that although the names Willard or Julius might sound stiff or old-fashioned, they don't sound foreign like Nimrata does, at least to some, which for now appears enough for the former president to latch on to. He's done the same with another well-known Indian American, Vice President Harris, suggesting again falsely that she was born elsewhere, as he does here. They're saying that she doesn't qualify because she wasn't born in this country. When he wasn't doing that, he was theatrically enunciating her first name for effect. And nobody treated him worse than Kamala. Kamala Harris, Kamala. Kamala, you know what to say, Kamala. And keeping him honest, when it comes to trying to paint some American citizens as foreigners, the former president has not limited himself to South Asian subcontinent. More than a decade ago, his target, of course, was the first black president. Here's what he was lying about 12 years ago. Well, I've been told very recently, Anderson, that the birth certificate is missing. I've been told that it's not there and it doesn't exist. None of that was true, and we and others pointed that out, but he kept at it for years. And to this day, he almost never fails to mention President Obama's middle name. President Barack Hussein Obama. President Barack Hussein Obama. Barack Hussein Obama. Crooked Joe Biden and his boss, Barack Hussein Obama, did this to us. Now, it's not just African-Americans or Indian-Americans he does this to. It's an American judge of Mexican descent and Elaine Chao, the, Amer the Asian-American wife of Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell. We're building a wall. He's a Mexican. He's, uh, in not, my, he's not from Mexico. In my opinion, he's from Indiana. He is Mexican, Mexican heritage, and he's very proud of it. Mitch McConnell and his wife, Coco Chow. Coco. Elaine Chao, as you might remember, was a member of his cabinet, and her husband was his top ally in the Senate. None of that, though, seems to matter to the former president. Racist dog whistles are just too appealing for him to pass up. Perspective now from CNN political commentator, former special assistant to President Obama, Van Jones, also pollster and communication strategist, Frank Luntz. So, Van, first of all, what do you make of now the president focusing on Nikki Haley and repeatedly trying to kind of otherize people of color? Well, it's, it's just what he does, but uh, it, part of it is he's insulting her. He's trying to get under her skin, but he's also trying to incite us. A big part of this isn't just the, the kind of racial uh, game that he plays uh, against people of color. It's also a show of force. He knows he's going to annoy liberals doing this. He knows he's going to annoy progressives doing this, and that we're going to frown and pout and scold him, and that he's not going to back down. So it shows he's powerful, see? I'm powerful. I can say mean things to people, and then when nice people say, don't be mean, I stay mean. See, I'm strong. This is a kind of psycho psychological game that he plays when he does this. He knows we're going to get mad, and it, it, it plays into his strategy of looking tough by punching down. Frank, do you think that resonates with voters? It does, and my shock, I got a chance to interview voters in eight different caucuses, and every Trump voter, all of them, 100%, were so behind him. They're behind his rhetoric. They're behind his approach. They're behind everything because they think he's a victim. A victim of you all, a victim of the court system, a victim of the entire political system in America. It's working with them, and it's scary. 
Because in the end, and this is my focus for the next 10 months, if we continue to play this game, if we continue to divide by race, by gender, by age, by geography, by all the divisions that we have, where's America going to be when this is all done? There are some things that are more important than an election. That's the next generation and the health of our, and safety of our democracy. And it is under threat. I agree completely with what Van just said. And you're, you're seeing that in focus groups you're doing. You're seeing, I mean, you, things are, are worse. You and I were just talking. Things are worse than you've ever seen them. I hear it. And I know that more people believe that the country is going to be worse for their kids than ever before. Less people believe in the American dream than ever before. I thought the American dream was to welcome people from other countries, give them a home here, allow them to, to succeed, allow them to prosper because it makes America stronger. And yet it feels like some of this politics is hostile to that, is actually opposed to the American dream. Then I mean, does this put Haley in a tough position with Republican voters? I mean, does she have to then somehow, does she just ignore it or does she have to somehow address false claims? That she's ineligible to run, for instance. I mean, it, you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. And that's exactly the brilliance of what he does is he, he forks you. Uh, he goes low. And then either you have to go low to defend yourself or you have to try to ignore it. And then it, it gains purchase, it, it gains traction, et cetera. Uh, a good thing about uh, Nikki Haley is that I think most people in the Republican Party know her. They know who she is. Uh, to Frank's point, I think people are proud of the fact uh, that her family came here and has done well and she's done well. And so I think that, uh, you know, she, she's relatively safe from this type of stuff. Uh, I really don't think it's going to have the effect of, of othering her. I really think it's more just about he wants to show that he's not going to bow down to liberal convention and liberal elites, period. And that's really more what he's doing. Um, I think Nikki Haley would be better off ignoring this stuff and continuing to make the case that she's making, which is that, uh, you know, she's certainly more electable than he is. And she has ideas that I think are better for America than he does. I'm no fan of Nikki Haley or any Republicans, but, you know, certainly uh, she's, she's a better choice for Republicans. Uh, but, but, but this is the type of stuff. And Frank is right. It's seeping in now to the culture, the nastiness, the divisiveness, the pettiness is becoming something that people not only are, are used to, but come to expect. And that's bad for everybody. And well, someone has yeah. to say no. Someone has to stand up and literally yes. say enough, but call out your own side. So when people say things within the Democratic Party on the on the far progressive side that challenges, let's say, the Jewish community, they need to say enough. And on the right, if, if Trump does this, enough. But I know didn't you, Chris Christie do that? And because but that's the whole point. It's not just about elections. It's not just about who wins and who loses. If you ask me, is this good for Republicans to win the election? In some states, frankly, it is. Is this good for democracy? Absolutely not. And New Hampshire, the key to what's about to happen. Iowa makes a statement. New Hampshire makes presidents. And in New Hampshire, she's been gaining and gaining. She's going to get the lion's share of Chris Christie's vote. But losing Vivek Ramaswamy is good for Trump. He's going to get the lion's share there. In the end, it's about the health of democracy in the long term. If Trump wins in New Hampshire, it's all over. Mm. If Nikki can beat him in New Hampshire, we go on for another five or six weeks at least. Yeah, Frank Lentz, appreciate it. Van Jones as well. Coming up, did the infamous Republican operative and Ally to the former president, Roger Stone, say he wanted two Democratic members of Congress assassinated. A new tape suggests he did. Stone says it's fake. We'll talk about it with one of the members of Congress, Eric Swalwell, in his first interview on Stone's alleged comments. 
Also, the wife of Britain's future king in the hospital, her father-in-law, King Charles, will be there soon as well. We have details ahead. Nine days ago, the media news website Mediaite published an explosive allegation that Roger Stone, a longtime Republican operative and key ally to the former president, had told an associate, a former NYPD officer named Sal Greco, that two Democrats needed to be assassinated. The conversation reportedly took place at a restaurant in Florida. Stone called the story fake. He tweeted that Mediaite, quote, can't produce the recording, said something very similar to the next day. Two days after that, Mediaite published the recording. A piece there, go find Swalwell and get this over with. It's time to do it. Then we'll see how brave the rest of them are. You can follow up either Swalwell or Nadler has to die before the election. They need to get the message. And just not putting up with this again. Now, CNN has not confirmed the authenticity of the recording. Stone has since called the tape, quote, AI-generated BS. Those were his exact words. Sources tell CNN that Capitol Police are now investigating the alleged comments. We should point out that last year CNN aired video gathered by the January 6th committee of Stone on January 6th saying, and I'm going to clean up his words here, F the voting, let's get right to the violence. Stone called that evidence, quote, deep fake videos. Joining us now for his first interview since the recording was revealed is Congressman Eric Swalwell. Congressman, so according to sources, I understand you weren't able, you weren't aware of this recording until it was published. Is that right? And I'm wondering what your reaction was. Uh, that, that's right, Anderson. And, uh, you know, frankly, uh, I was stunned uh, that he was so brazen uh, about it. And maybe I shouldn't be stunned because uh, the truth is, uh, when it comes to Donald Trump and his, you know, henchmen uh, like Roger Stone, uh, they prefer violence over voting. They're bankrupt of any ideas that would help anyone who watches your show. And so they want to, as he said, get right uh, to the violence. And, and so, yes, uh, I was stunned. I'm still stunned. We can't normalize this uh, at all. And all I ask uh, of my colleagues uh, who I serve with is let's join together uh, and let's you know, allow our unity to be the antidote uh, to these types of threats and, and that we condemn them, whether they're against Republicans or Democrats. Do you take Roger Stone's alleged threat seriously? I do. Uh, I, I take him seriously for my family. I take him seriously for uh, my staff. And as we saw with uh, Speaker Pelosi and the attack uh, on her husband, you know, too often uh, the target of an attack is on the move. And it's our family and our staff who are often you know, stationary uh, at the home uh, or the office. And, and so that uh, is the priority. And I, you know, I thank law enforcement, uh, you know, in, in prior threats, and I hope in this threat uh, for taking that seriously. Sources are telling CNN both Capitol Police and FBI are investigating this, this alleged threat. Can you say if you're cooperating with e either agency, is there anything you can say about it? Yeah, you know, Anderson, all I can say right now is that uh, I stand ready uh, to cooperate, uh, but I also am not going to be intimidated. And, and I know, you know, in part, the aim of a threat like this, and, and someone was arrested not too far from where Roger Stone lives a couple weeks ago for making a similar threat uh, against my kids, you know, that they were going to kill my children. Uh, the aim of these threats uh, is, is to silence me and to silence anyone like me in Congress from speaking out against Donald Trump. And, and in fact, Roger Stone said on that audio tape uh, that I need to get the message. Well, uh, message received and my message back to Roger Stone is I'm not going away. And the American people who have voted against Donald Trump every single day since he was elected in 2016 
they're not going away either. And, and they've put us in the majority in the House. They've put us in the majority in the Senate. They put Joe Biden in the White House. And Donald Trump and his henchmen have been losers ever since. And, and so if the aim is to make us go away, it's not going to work. Uh, but I will do everything I have to do to protect my family and staff. Do you think he should be charged with something? I mean, do, what consequences do you think would be appropriate? Well, Anderson, you know, it, it looks like this was his voice and an outside independent organization called AI.spy, not affiliated with me at all. Uh, they put out a report saying that this was human uh, generated. And it sure sounds, you know, a hell of a lot like the way Roger Stone has talked about me in the past and the way that he talks about Donald Trump's political opponents. And so all I ask is that, you know, if this is what he said, uh, that he's treated no better and no worse than anyone else, and, and that anyone else who makes threats against Republicans or Democrats, uh, that, you know, we start to, you know, have, a, you know, a, a rule of law that says we're a country where we settle our scores at the ballot box, not through violence. And when you use violence or threaten violence, you're going to pay the price for that and you're going to be held accountable. Well, Congressman Eric Swalwell, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks, Anderson. Coming up, we have breaking news. More U.S. action against Houthi rebels in Yemen. We'll have a live report from the Pentagon. Plus, a 360 exclusive, Sharon Cunio was a hostage in Gaza for 52 days. I spoke to her about the day her family was kidnapped and the major hospital in Gaza she says she was held at at one point or for much of her captivity. Also tonight, major medical issues for Britain's king and the wife of its future king. Details on that ahead as well. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. So you need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. And it needs to say, I'm a thoughtful person and I appreciate you. And I know exactly what you like all at the same time. Well, Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life, like the pickleballer, the jazz fan, or the pasta lover. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality TV and gaming, there's something for everyone on Etsy. Whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you, Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Breaking news to report for the fourth time in less than a week, the U.S. has carried out strikes against the Houthi militants in Yemen, whose attacks on vital shipping lanes in the Red Sea have raised alarms about possible major economic fallout throughout the world. Orrin Lieberman is at the Pentagon tonight. What are you learning? Anderson, we have learned the target of these U.S. strikes were 14 uh, missile launchers used by the Houthis, uh, both anti-ship ballistic missile launchers as well as anti-ship cruise missile launchers. These are the types of weapons the Houthis, an Iranian-backed rebel group, have used to target international shipping lanes. As you pointed out, this is the fourth time in less than a week the U.S. has targeted Houthi sites in Yemen. The U.S. here showing a willingness to go after Houthi weapons and the types of capabilities they have used to target international shipping here. Meanwhile, the Houthis 
Sufis have given no indication they will back down. They have threatened to continue to target U.S. assets as well as U.K. assets. It's those two countries that launched the first set of strikes uh, on Thursday night. That was followed up by a U.S. follow-on action, as U.S. Central Command put it on Friday. Yesterday, the U.S. struck a series of anti-ship ballistic missile launchers. And then this, further strikes against Houthi capabilities in Yemen here. It's worth noting the context here. Twice this week, the Houthis have successfully targeted and struck a U.S.-owned and operated vessel in the Gulf of Aden. In both cases, it was minor damage and the ship uh, continued on its way here. But you see this playing out uh, essentially in a very violent way. It's worth, uh, finally, I'll point out, Anderson, that the U.S. hadn't carried out strikes earlier as the Biden administration was trying to avoid an escalation in the region here. But now the U.S. feeling compelled to act. Martin Lieberman, thanks. This was the scene yesterday in Gaza's second largest city, Khan Yunus. Patients and others at the Al Nasser Hospital fleeing from nearby Israeli airstrikes as IDF forces headed toward what is the largest hospital in the city. Israel said Hamas has recently carried out a launch from within the Al Nasser Hospital compound toward its forces. The hospital is where my next guest says she was held for most of her 52 days of captivity in Gaza. In a 360 exclusive, I spoke to 34-year-old Sharon Cunio about the day, October 7th, when she and eight of her family members, including her husband and twin daughters, were kidnapped. Plus, how she was treated and what she remembers from El Nasser Hospital. I spoke to her earlier today. So, Sharon, first of all, how are you doing? How are your daughters? Uh, we're not doing very good. I have, uh, I'm suffering from depression. I have anxiety attacks and panic attacks. The girls also suffer from rage. They have um, confident issues. They can really rely on anyone and they keep asking when is their dad coming back from Gaza. You and, and your kids, your husband David, uh, your, your sister, uh, her child, were all taken from near Oz, the kibbutz. And uh, you were actually separated from Emma, one of your, your three-year-olds. Three they're both, they're twins. When did you realize that she wasn't with you? Uh, after we broke out of the window, they separated me from my sister, Emma, and my niece, Amelia. I was uh, not really conscious because of all the smoke. And I realized that one of them is dragging me away. And I was, I was sure he was about to rape me and kill me. And when I looked back, I haven't seen my sister, my daughter, or my niece. And I had no idea what happened to them. You were, you'd been hiding in your safe room in near Oz with your husband, with your two kids, with your sister and her, and, and her daughter. Um, finally, you had to leave because they lit the house on fire and the smoke, you were going to suffocate. You were taken to, to Gaza. Where were you held initially? Uh, initially, we were in a house, of a civilian house, with two terrorists guarding us inside a room for 24-7. Uh, only me, David, and uh, Julie. After nine days, the house next to us was bombed, and then they decided to move us. They brought in an ambulance that disguised David as a corp. They put me in traditional Arab clothes and they put Yuli on me and covered her with a sheet and told me to look down. When, when you were in this house, uh, you were only with your one daughter. You didn't know, did you know where Emma was? 
No, I kept asking them, begging them, crying them to them. Please look for my daughter. Her name is Emma. She looks exactly like this one. They're identical twins. Please, please. They just told David always to tell me to leave them alone. They don't know what happened to her. That must have been horrific to be separated from your three-year-old and for her, identi for her identical twin sister to be separated as well. Yeah, it's probably the hardest thing that we have to go through during our captivity not knowing where she is, if she's even alive. So, so the house you're staying in, the house next door gets shelled and they, your captors actually transport you out of that house in an ambulance. So they use an ambulance to put you and your husband uh, and your daughter, Julie, they ask your husband to pretend to be dead and lay on a stretcher, is that right? Yeah, correct. And they covered him with a white sheet. There's obviously been a lot of discussion about what role hospitals uh, are, you know, how hospitals are being used by, by Hamas and, and other groups. You actually ended up being taken to a hospital and held with other hostages in a hospital. Is that right? What hospital was it? Um, the hospital was Nasser in Khan Yunus. The Nasser we hospital. We were taken there uh, up until the end. Yeah, up until the end. Um, there were about three rooms of hostages. Each one was 10 to 12 people in it, small rooms, 12 square feet. And when you're at the hospital, what were conditions like? And did hospital personnel know you were there? Um, they used one hospital personnel to come and see us every, every other day. He knew who we are. He went along with it. And uh, we were held there um, up until we were released. And what sort of conditions? You were in an exam room with 10 to 12 other people. Did you have bathroom, a shower, or food? Um, it's not in the room. We had bathroom outside, but they used to lock us in the rooms. So we had to knock in order to get stuff or even go to the bathroom. Sometimes they would open up after five minutes. Sometimes it would take a few hours. It was really hard when we all had uh, diarrhea and vomiting. And um, when we, at, at first we didn't have showers. And after a while they gave us a bucket and a glass. You were reunited with Emma. I, that, I mean, can you describe that moment? Uh, yeah, we were brought into the room in the middle of the night and around the morning or noon the next day, they asked us to do a video for some elderly officers or something. And four or five people came inside the room and suddenly I heard a voice of a baby crying outside the door. And I grab David and I'm, I, I tell him, oh my God, this is Emma's voice. And he's telling me, what are you talking about? She's not here, you know that. And I told them, I'm losing my mind. I'm hallucinating. And then the crying starts to get louder. And it sounds like it, it comes into the room. And then I just saw a person holding Emma and giving her to me like she's a package. And she's hysterical and crying, and I'm, I'm trying to calm her down. 
but she wouldn't. And then I started to sing her this lullaby I sing for her every night. And just then she began to relax a bit. But the first nights with her was really difficult because she would wake up screaming and would, wouldn't calm down for hours. And they would yell at us to be quiet. Emotionally, what is it like at this time? I mean, to be in this room with all these people in this hospital, I imagine you're hearing what's happening outside. You're hearing shelling in the distance. How, how, how would you get through the days? How was your husband? It was really difficult because we had no information. We didn't have a radio or TV. So the, the only thing we, the only stuff we knew is when we used to ask them, our captors for a bit of information, what was going on. And we didn't really get any hope from them. We kind of felt that everyone had given up on us. We had no idea what is happening in Israel, that everyone is fighting for us. And we really suffer from depression every day. I used to cry almost every day because I didn't have my depression pills also. And David was so frustrated. He used to bit himself uh, in the face sometimes until he bled. On Friday, November 24th, something changed. What happened on that day? On November 24th, um, a man came inside and asked to talk to David. And after, I think, 20 minutes, David came back with a frightened face, and I told him what happened. And he said that one of the uh, officers wants to talk to him, and he would be back in two hours. And it sounded kind of weird, so we asked one of the captors if he's really coming back, and he said no. They're taking him to a place with other men, because... Uh, a deal has began, and they're bringing back only women and children at the moment. And they let us, they told us they will come back for him. We didn't know for how long. And for three hours, we just sat there and cried. And I begged him not to go. And he told me he was so scared and asked me to fight for him. And the girls cried and begged him not to go and said, why, why does our father has to leave? Why can't they take someone else's dad? It was a really, I think, the hardest day. And this is the day I'm stuck on and I can't really manage to recover from. From, from that separation. I understand you, you tried to convince David to let you stay with him in Gaza and send, send your girls back to Israel. Yeah, I told him we have an amazing family from both sides. I know they will take good care of them. I don't want to leave you alone in Gaza. I know what it's like to be there, and it's really difficult. We have barely food. The food we had was moldy. It was so hard to be there and to think that he is going to be there alone by himself, God knows where. It was... the the hardest decision I had to make in my life, but they didn't really give us even any choice because they just stated a fact that the men are going to other places. And then he's taken away. Have you had any word about him since? Uh, we just know that he was taken down to the tunnels. 
So how do you get through each day now? I usually cry all day. I try to be strong for the girls because I know they look up to me currently because I'm both mother and a father right now. But when they don't see me, I cry. I watch video of, videos of him. I hear uh, sound voices from him just to kind of feel connected to him. Do your daughters ask a lot about him? Every day. Every day. Is there anything else you want people to know or that you want, you want to say? Yeah, I want people to understand that every minute counts and every minute in captivity lasts like a lifetime. And tomorrow would be the double amount of time that I was in captivity that my husband and the other 135 people are in against their will. And everything needs to be done in order to make a deal and bring him home now. If David can hear this now, is there anything you want to say to him? My love, I hope that I'm making you proud for fighting for you. And I promise you, I won't stop up until I can't breathe anymore. I will fight for you, for bringing you home, for our girls, because you deserve it. And I love you, and I can't wait to see you. Sharon, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Anderson. We'll be right back. Kate, Princess of Wales, the wife of the future British king, is hospitalized after abdominal surgery. Next week, her father-in-law, King Charles, will also be in hospital when the 75-year-old monarch has his own medical procedure. I have details now from CNN's royal correspondent, Max Foster, in London. From her recent engagements, the Princess of Wales has looked well and been in good spirits. The first suggestion that she may have been unwell came on Wednesday when Kensington Palace announced she was in hospital, recovering from abdominal surgery. It was successful, and a source told CNN it wasn't cancer-related. She would need to remain in hospital for up to two weeks, though, and up to three months recuperating at home in Windsor. All engagements and travel have been put on hold, as they have for Prince William, as he takes care of his family. Then news that King Charles would also be going to hospital next week with an enlarged prostate. We're told it's benign, and it was announced on the same day because it meant he had to cancel a meeting with government ministers on Thursday in Scotland. In total, three out of four of the most senior British working royals out of action, and no further updates expected until the princess leaves hospital or takes a turn for the worse. Kate is keen on fitness and enjoys playing sports, so she is expected to recover well. The palaces rarely release private medical details, which is why they haven't explained what the surgery was actually for. But she could have been spotted leaving the hospital and questions would have been asked why she was cancelling engagements. A source told CNN that the king took the view that sharing his condition would encourage other men to have their prostates checked. So, Max, what happens when so many members of the royal family are, are not doing what they normally do, appearing in places? 
Uh, well, I, I think, you know, a lot of it comes down to Queen, uh, Camilla. Uh, she will be out and about, I'm sure, next week uh, to show continuity in the monarchy because I think the surprise here is that, you know, these key members are vulnerable and that William has stepped in to sort of support them. Um, and she will be supported by Anne and Edward and Edward's wife, Sophie, really expressing how the monarchy has been slimmed down because, of course, Prince Andrew's no longer working, neither are Harry and Meghan, and, of course, the Queen isn't either. So it's much more slimmed down monarchy. And it, it, there's a fragility to it that I think we saw today. And how are people in the UK reacting? Uh, well, people in the UK, I think initially they were a bit puzzled by the amount of time that uh, the princess will need to recover. And now I think they feel quite shocked because she is the vibrant centrepiece, really, of the royal family. She's the one that makes front pages. We're not going to see her uh, for months. And, you know, she is this picture of health and quite surprised, really, uh, quite shocked, really, that she could potentially be vulnerable, you know, with, you know, the, the experience of the Queen dying. Uh, not that far away in the memory. Yeah, Max Foster, thanks very much. Appreciate it. That's it for us. The news continues. The Source with Caitlin Collins starts now.